Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of education research in the classroom. Each episode features a conversation with a different guest, teachers, authors and others interested in education, talking about what the phrase from page to practice means to them and the importance of applying evidence to classroom practice. Hi and welcome to episode 22 of series 5 of From Page to Practice. Today I talk to Clara Mason about her role as a deputy head and her thoughts following reading the book Equity in Education. I hope you enjoy. Hi and welcome to From Page to Practice. Today I am here with Clara. So rather than do any of the uh, introductions myself, we all know I do this the lazy way. Clara, could you introduce yourself please? (laughs) Hello. Um, So my name is um, Clara Mason and I am a Deputy Head Teacher at a large comprehensive school um, in North Somerset, uh, just north of Bristol. Um, We're a true comprehensive, uh, we get the full range um, of students um, and my responsibility as deputy head is curriculum um, with responsibility for assessment teaching and learning uh, but also have responsibility for pupil premium um, so it's kind of the crossover between those two things that I'm really interested in lots to cover there then yeah lots of lots of things that come under your responsibility in that case so um before we move on to the main body of what we're going to talk about could you tell me what does the phrase from page to practice mean to you For me, it means everything that I'm working on with our staff, everything that I'm thinking about is based on some research. It's not based on something I've seen. I mean, I might have seen it, but where does that idea come from? And I think if you're basing it embedded in research, then you're not looking at something that's faddy, something that's going to disappear in a few years' time. It's It's really hard to argue with these strategies if you know that they're absolutely based on research. And to do that, you've got to read and read and read that research um, and put it into practice. And I find that you get a lot more buy-in from staff um, when they can see that it's based on research, particularly if you're working with a really experienced group of staff. Um, My school is a really big school. It's 1,800 children. We've got lots and lots of staff, many of whom have been there for 20, 30 years, and they bring lots of expertise. But with them, they also bring lots of experience of faddy things and things that have come and gone. And so it's, it's, it enables you to kind of get past all of that. You know, we're not discussing does this work or not. We know it works because we've got some research. So let's look at how we're actually going to do it. And we don't need to waste our time debating whether it works or not. Um, And I find that really useful when I'm planning CPD. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. 
So moving into the, the main body of our conversation now, I was thinking earlier, I think we probably first connected quite a while ago, when I, even when I first started the podcast, I think. So I think I know some of, when I'm going to ask you, what's your approach to CPD and what do you like about edgy books? I think those must be things you are you're interested in and, and into. Um, so yeah, could you tell me a little bit about your, your own approach to CPD and, and what, what is it you like about reading for, for CPD? Yeah, I think it's very much enables you to focus on very specific things. So if I think about the CPD that I've done over the last three years um, at my current school, it's not trying to do everything all at once. It's focusing on, okay, what do we want to improve? Let's do the reading to see what the research says about how to improve this. And let's focus on one thing at a time. And let's give teachers time to develop it, to practice it, to get it wrong, to improve it, to watch each other, to talk to students about the impact of it, rather than doing everything all at once. So if I think about our sort of three-year journey up to where I am now in my current school, you know, the first two terms I was working with staff, all we did was talk about questioning. Um, That was it. And I was like the most boring person in school because it's all I ever talked about was questioning. And everything we did was around questioning. But based on the research and then putting those things into practice, But rather than saying, you know, this week it's questioning, next week it's this, this week it's this, to give two whole terms dedicated to developing our practice in one area. And then we moved on to a second focus, um, which was around modelling. And, you know, we spent the next three terms on modelling. And that's definitely my approach. Less is more. um, Really honing in on one thing at a time. And the other thing I try to do when I'm planning it is think how things link together. So when I started our sort of three year programme that we're kind of in at the moment, I started with questioning because I felt like it's, you know, the most powerful thing that teachers can do. But also one where generally I was seeing quite a lot of good practice. It was just a case of elevating it to the next stage um, rather than starting with something totally new, which would be more challenging, I think. Um, So I think kind of think very carefully. And then there was a natural segue from, okay, we've got good at questioning now. So now let's think about how we model answers for students and how we might use questioning when we model. Oh, but we already know about questioning. So now we've moved on to modelling. And I think staff value that there's some thought. It's not like, oh, I woke up today and I thought about this. And then I went on this course and I thought about this. Um, there's like a, a, you know, a three, four year plan to build on each step. Um, and I'm not saying it's perfect, but there is a plan. Um, and the research kind of helps that plan to be credible, I think, um, and for staff to buy into it much more of a long-term focus as opposed to quick wins that might not be such quick wins they're just quick and and then disappear and again then forgotten you know, you know exactly and then, you, then you're in a meeting like two years later and someone goes oh yeah didn't we do a thing about that and you're like mm, yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or when you, you have you know, spoken to people in, maybe if I've joined a school new and I've spoken about something that I don't necessarily know they've done in CPD and they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, we did a session on that once. Yeah, once. Yeah, and? 
Yeah. Because that's that's quite a good thing I'm talking about here, but they've seen it as something faddy because it has been done in that way. And it's a real shame because I think it it influences the way teachers can look at certain things. So let's take a word like let's say retrieval. If if you've you're in a school where you've had a one off session on retrieval and it's never come around again, you're just gonna treat it as a buzzword as opposed to something that you can really embed in in good teaching. And I think you see that an awful lot I think you see it less than you used to actually now that there's more research out there and I think people have got that or people are a bit more on board with that but you do still it's almost like what's the flavor of this week or the flavor of this month but but it's so much deeper than that isn't it I think oh, absolutely so on a on a more individual level as opposed to whole school what's your approach to to finding your own cpd do you do more reading listening to podcasts is there certain events and things you like to go to what's your yeah. kind of so lots and lots of reading um i'm a reader anyway because i'm a historian so love to read um but lots of sort of recommendations from um following from social media essentially take lots of recommendations recommendations from that to then read ahead um and also, you know, through recommendations, you know, in a sort of network of other teachers, you know, I've read this or what about, um, you know, what about this? Have you taken this bit? Um, and use the EEF stuff quite a lot as well um, as a starting point. And often that then kind of can lead into other recommended reads. Um they're the main things, really. Lots and lots of reading. <laughs> yeah. So talking of reading and leading into other things, I know you, you mentioned to me before there's something in particular you've been reading recently that we could have a bit of a chat about. Yeah. So I have just read this most excellent book. Um, it only came out at the beginning of October. Oh, um, well, you've been quick. <laughs> yes. I was waiting for it to come out. Um, it's by Lee Elliott Major and Emily Bryant, and it's called Equity in Education. And I saw, well, I met Lee Elliott Major on a training course that I was on a few weeks ago um, and he was talking about all of his work um, so he is was the first UK professor in social mobility and he works in the University of Exeter and he's written lots of other books but uh, I met him on this training course and he was talking about this book not just trying to sell the book but uh, talking about the book <laughs> so it was really interesting to meet him um, and talk to him and then um, yeah and then I've been reading it and I think I found it really powerful because it confirmed a lot of things that I thought already, but also was quite challenging in terms of challenging my thinking. And I think you've got to have a bit of that challenge, haven't you, for it to land. And the book is called, like I said, Equity in Education. And it's 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 it kind of sells itself as a practical guide for teachers. Um, but it has a lot of you know, it's based on thousands and thousands of pieces of research, but it's also very practical. And I like that balance of, you know, here's the academic research, because I like that, and that gives you credibility. But also, what does that actually look like in the classroom? If you are, there's a chapter in, for example, there's a chapter in here for new teachers, you know, ECTs. What, what does that actually mean? What does this research mean for you in your first year of teaching when you're just trying to get your head around, you know, what you're doing? And then it's got a chapter, you know, for more experienced teachers. And then it's got a section for school leaders. And, and it, it actually goes beyond education. It kind of puts education in, you know, as a tool for social mobility, but, but that schools can't do it on their own. So there needs to be a sort of social change angle as well. But schools are kind of part of this big picture. So, I mean, 
you read it and it gives you like goosebumps about the changes that, you know, that schools can make um, and, you know, the capacity and how powerful schools can be to change lives, I guess. Well, there seems like there's loads for us to pick up on there. Yeah. So you you first started by saying there's some things in there that it kind of confirmed for you. Have you got any examples of, of what it kind of helped you to understand a bit better? Yeah, so I think probably the most powerful message is that effective pedagogy, effective teaching and learning is the greatest tool that we have for improving the learning of, you know, students from under-resourced families or disadvantaged students. And that, you know, effective pedagogy, research-based strategies, of course, they benefit all students, but they benefit those students from under-resourced families more. They are the most powerful tool um, for you know, developing and improving the life chances of those students. And, and in particular, focuses on those strategies that we know the research shows are the most powerful. So things like metacognitive talk and developing that in the classroom as something normal and ordinary. All students benefit from that, but students from under-resourced families really benefit from that. Um, focusing on literacy and, um, you know, second tier vocabulary, not making assumptions about words that students will know um, they might know them but they might not so we mustn't assume that they know that they know those words and also lots and lots in the book about feedback and what makes really effective feedback and that's the one that I thought was really interesting because there's lots of stuff I knew in there you know the feedback needs to be actionable it needs to be focused it needs to be very precise on what was good and why and what to improve but what I thought was really good is it what he talks about in the book is how you can you can be doing all of those strategies feedback metacognitive talk excellent questioning doing all the literary stuff literacy stuff but that alone isn't going to make the difference for students from under-resourced families. It's what goes with those strategies. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting because I've always, my mantra has always been get them into school and teach them really well, teach the hell out of them, teach them so well um, that they can't help but make progress. But what this book is really uh, powerful on is that it's about the relationships that you have with students that make those strategies effective, that the strategies on their own are great strategies, research-based, but without the authentic individual relationships between teachers and particularly students from under-resourced families, those strategies will not be as effective. Um, and feedback was a really good example of that because, you know, you can do the most beautiful individual feedback for a student. But if that student doesn't trust you as their teacher, if they don't believe that you believe they can do it and that you have high aspirations for them, it doesn't matter how good your feedback is because they won't take it on board. So that's the bit that I... I didn't find challenging in because I disagree with it, because I agree with it, but it just really made me think about it's about more than pedagogy. It's really pedagogy plus those authentic relationships. That's what makes the difference, particularly um, for under-resourced, you know, children from under-resourced families. Um, and I just found that so interesting in, in the context of sort of education as social mobility. 
really. I think it sounds like it's been pitched really well because there was a lot there. You could, yep, make sense. I know this. Mm. Yep, I get yep. that. And then you, then you hit that moment of, oh, yeah, this makes sense, but that is not something I'd necessarily been doing. And yeah. it just – it makes you comfortable brings you in and then just pushes you that little bit further to to what you need right and I think and sometimes even if you're doing it you haven't thought consciously why am I doing it so I kind of think you know and I hope to think you know the children in my class I still teach quite a lot as a deputy so I think about my year 10 class some characters that's the way to word them (laughs) um and you know when I work really hard to chat to them about other things and you know their football team and what are they doing and all of that and I I've always thought of that as a a behavior management sort of tool and I think it is you know build relationships misses human you know all of those things but what I think I hadn't thought about is how by doing that the pedagogy is even better than just the pedagogy on its own so I think sometimes we can be doing things and we know they're good and they work, but maybe we haven't really thought about why they work. And if we don't know why, we might not keep doing them, I guess. That's so, such yeah. an important point. I've spoken about that a bit, bit before when I've talked about CPD because it's all well and good us telling people what to do or even how to do it. But if they don't understand why they're doing that thing, you can end up changing the wrong things. You know, we end up with these lethal mutations, don't you, where mm. someone goes, oh, yeah, I'm doing retrieval because I've done this thing. Yeah. And it turns out that actually they've removed all the things that made that thing work yeah. and you're left with something that's that's meaningless. And I guess it's the same there. You know, you've you've got the relationship building, you've got the feedback, but you, if you don't know why you're doing a particular thing or the exact mm. effect it's having, it can, it can lose its way somewhere along the line, can't it? Yeah, and I think there's a really good quote actually, which is in the in the book Equity in Education. And uh, you know the I'm not going to sing. You know the Banana Rama song. It ain't what you do; it's the way that you do it, right? Which I think is a good that's a good way to think about it. But what what they do in the book is slightly tweak it. You know, it's not what you do; it's the why that you do it. And then that quote, I was like, oh, to highlight that, wrote that, and I it really, yeah, just really made me think about it in a different way and the power of those relationships beyond behavior actually about learning they learn better those students students will learn better with an authentic relationship with you um I think the other bit I found in the in this book that was really not challenging because I disagreed but you know really made me think and think about conversations that I have with staff is that Sometimes when we're talking about students that we teach from, you know, under-resourced backgrounds, we often see or we can see a lack of motivation and we put the lack of motivation as the cause for poor progress. You know, the reason they're not making progress is because they can't be bothered, because they're apathetic. Whereas this book challenges you to refocus that into a sort of capability mindset so that a lack of motivation is a res- can be a response to repeated failure, not a cause of failure. So if your experience of school has been overwhelmingly negative, if your self-esteem is so low about your ability in school, then you will lack motivation. And of course, that affects your progress, but it's not, it's, it's not the cause on its own. It's what underpins that lack of motivation, which goes back to um, authentic relationships. Because unless you 
speak to students individually about what is difficult and what they are finding challenging and you unless you really really listen I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of well they're lazy and they've got low aspirations um and that comes you know comes from home and actually you know what in this book, um, and when I heard Lee Elliott Major speak, he talked a lot about, you know, the research that's been done, talking to families, you know, from uh, sort of under-resourced families, and, you know, they don't have lower aspirations for their children. They don't. They might lack the knowledge or the skills to access certain things, or they might have a predisposed kind of attitude towards education. It doesn't mean that they don't want their children to do really, really well. And I think it's sometimes tapping into that as well. So that, yeah, that made me think quite a lot. Sounds like it's been really good for kind of reframing those kinds of things and making you reconsider. It it sounds like a really good book for a lot of people to read, actually, especially in uh, how to put it. How do we use the word more challenging schools Mm. quite often? I've noticed it's been picked up. You've been using the word under-resourced. Is that a word that's been used in the book? Because it's not the word you often hear. You often hear disadvantaged and I've yes. just been picked up that you've been using it I wondered if it was the book or yeah, and I'm your s- own school yeah no I'm so glad <laughs> because it was very deliberate so it is well it was from listening to Lee Elliott Major talk actually about it and he um talked at length about that word disadvantaged and what that brings with it you know is that the student is disadvantaged before you've even begun. Now, are they as a person disadvantaged or is it the background that's under-resourced which is affecting them? And it's about, you know, not labelling students. And, uh, and I mean, it's sort of unconscious bias, but it's not even unconscious. It's right there in the word, isn't it? Disadvantaged. And I, you know, I'd never thought about that word until I um, heard Lee Elliott Major talk until then I read the book I'd never I'd never thought about how negative that could be whereas what we're talking about is you know these students have extra barriers because of being from an under-resourced family and it's about barriers isn't it it's not about disadvantage in in necessarily in that sort of negative connotation of the word um And I found that, yeah, I found it really powerful. And I've been trying really hard to use under-resourced families. Um, And I think think that's about being inclusive, being truly inclusive um, when you're talking to staff and talking about different students. And I think as well, and it's partly because of how the funding comes, isn't it? You know, because it's associated with the pupil premium. You know, we're asked and inspected about our disadvantaged students. Um, So, you know, there's always that risk of lumping those students together and not knowing them as individuals. Um, And I think the label disadvantage doesn't help with all of that. So I think it's an interesting, yeah, it was an interesting, interesting change. And you're right, I'd not really thought about the word too much before. And, And I saw a conversation on Twitter, I think it was yesterday actually where people were talking about using the term low ability versus using the term low prior attainer or what do you want to say and should should we be saying anything at all and that kind of thing and then when you were using under resource just now I was thinking oh I think that must be deliberate because I've never heard someone using the word like that before and there's a lot of those kind of terms that we use aren't there that become 
quite a quite a heavy label to be putting on a student um and you know we we have to for practicality's sake sometimes do these things don't we and I'm, I'm not criticizing the use of any of these words but to reframe it to go I know this is the word we use on the kind of officially to measure this thing but actually if we look at it a different way how might that change our approach in the classroom and, and you've yeah. made that clear there and I think it helps with that you know, that capacity mindset, um, you know, that and having truly high aspirations for all of the students we teach. Yes, this student is from an under-resourced background. Okay, so they need more of our time and more of our resources. Um, And that's where I think even the title of this book, you know, it's about equity. It's not about equality because, you know, for some of the students from an under-resourced family, having the same as everybody else won't be enough. It will need to be more. So it's equity, not equality. And I think I think that's a really powerful message. In here, there's lots of um, uh, examples from schools where um, they have managed to close the gap between different groups of students, and in particular looking at the work of the REACH Foundation in London um, and the REACH Academy, Feltham Academy, um, and, you know, and that kind of powerful work there around high aspirations, high expectations, but all underpinned with really authentic relationships and quality pedagogy. Um, Yeah, it's great stuff. Oh, well, that's interesting because I was going to ask, is there anything, and I know you've only just been reading it, so I'm, mm. I'm not suggesting you've actioned the entire book and changed the world yet, but um, <laughs> not yet. is there anything <laughs> you've you've starting to think, oh, yeah, I think we need to think about this or within my school we might go down this road? Or Yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's quite a, few, <laughs> quite a few things. But I think in terms of whole school and my role whole school, I think, you know, we talk a lot about, hard to reach families and oh wouldn't it be good if our families different families came into school and did, you know and we talk a lot about that but do we need to change up our offer of of how we're trying to get a broader range of, of families engaged with what we're doing in school and and if you're going to build really authentic relationships with students you need authentic relationships with families as well and I think, you know, those traditional ways of getting families in, it, you know, if they're not working, why are we still doing those? Um, you know, even if we're doing individual phone calls to invite, you know, targeted families to things, maybe we need to just mix up how we do those things. And I think talking to primary colleagues, I think they often, you know, I've been able to mix it up in a bit more of a different way than in a large secondary school. It's more challenging, isn't it? Because the parents aren't there necessarily at the end of the day or they're not there at the beginning of the day doing the drop off and pick up. But but there must be ways for large comprehensive schools to do things differently, to engage all of the families and to build those authentic relationships I mean I don't know what yet but that's what I'm thinking about yeah, yeah. you've made me think I'm, I might pick up a copy of this book I've recently started as a um, as a governor at a primary school and one of the things we were talking about recently is you know, how can we engage those families that we're struggling to engage with to give the support we need and and the, the background um, and the local area of the, the school I'm at could really benefit from that a lot lot of to use the word under-resourced families for sure um so i think that the book sounds like it's got value for a lot of different people in a lot of different 
areas of education as well. Yeah, I think that's what I thought was good about it and unusual, really, that it you could read it as someone interested in social mobility and education just as a strand of that. You could read it as a school leader, um, you know, with the you know, with that as a responsibility, you could read it as a new teacher just coming into it or an experienced teacher. And I think there's not many books that I've read that kind of land in all of those categories. Um, yeah. So I no, definitely. For, for something to be so applicable to so many, mm. uh, it's quite rare, isn't it? You often mm. find books that you think, oh, that'd be really useful for a new teacher or yeah. that'd be really useful for this particular set of people. But for it to have something for that many people sounds like a, a good, val- good value book in a yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So before we move into the, the CPD library round, is there anything else that you were hoping to talk about related to the book or otherwise that we've kind of we've not covered? I don't think so. I'm just, um, no, I don't think so. The only other thing I thought was really powerful in the book, which kind of links to lots of things that I've said already, is that I think we've got to, you know, when we're thinking about children from under-resourced families in our own classroom or we're thinking whole school, I think we often focus on, you know, let's give those pupils a seat at the table, okay? Let's give them the places on the school trips. Let's pay for them to do the clubs. Let's make sure they've got the uniform. And all of that is really, really important. Of course it is. And we have to do those things. But there's things beyond the financial stuff that really matter. And that there's a really good quote in this book. Um, and it says, you know, we can, all the things that we give pupils to give them a seat at the table, but how do we make them feel like they belong at our table? And that I like, I love a quote. And that I thought was, that's about more than money, isn't it? It's about, it's about relationships. And this school is for you. And I believe in you. And I want you to be here. And I know that you can be successful. And that's not about, well, it's about more than I'll pay for your uniform, you can go on this trip, you can join this club. Because even if you do all of those things, sometimes those students aren't doing those things, even though we've removed the financial barrier, because the barrier is more complex than a financial one. And I think I think that's really important to reflect on as well. Yeah, that's a really good quote. I think you're right. It links into so much of what you said, but that yeah, you you can you can feel like you've done all of the things, you know, you can go through your tick box and yeah. I've, I've bought them the revision guide and yeah. I've put them on the trip and I've done this, that and the yeah. other, but it's not made the difference or yeah. they've not engaged with it. And you will, you, it can be assumed that, well, they've not bothered to engage with it. Yeah. Then I've done everything I need to, yeah. but you're so right about the, you know, about how do we make them feel like that's somewhere that they belong to be yeah. rather than, oh, well, school have paid for me to do it so that I can go, you know, yeah. and there, and there's give, definitely a different view there. Yeah. And I think if I, it was really brought home to me actually last summer. So we run, um, you know, a trip of enrichment weeks and one year group, well, two year groups have a residential and, you know, we pay for some students to take part in the residential as we should. But as it got closer and closer to the residential, a number of students pulled out. And when you looked at the backgrounds of those students, they were students from under-resourced families. Now we paid for them to go and yet they didn't feel like they could go even though we'd paid for them to go. And then that, and like people were annoyed, you know, I can't believe it. We've paid for these children to go and they're not going. And you're just like, hang on a minute, let's unpick this and ask ourselves why they don't feel able to go away with their peers for a week. And it is heartbreaking, actually. Um, 
And, you know, we haven't got all the answers yet, but I think beginning with, I'm not cross with them about that. Let's try and understand why um, and, and have those real conversations with families about why. And then maybe we could, there's more, you know, there's certainly more we can do beyond we'll pay for you, off you go. <laughs> like that fixes it. Yeah, yeah. Thinking beyond the fire, I think that's the, if there's one thing to take away from the conversation. Actually, it's what's come up right at the end there that yeah. it's it's about more than the financial. You know, how am I going to use this pupil premium funding mm. to support mm. these students? And actually, what else can we do? What are we making yeah. sure we're in terms of their own emotions as opposed to just finances? Yeah, yeah. So before we move on to the CPD library round, if anybody wants to continue a conversation with you on on these kind of lines, where can they find you? Oh, well, I am on, I was going to say Twitter, but I suppose I should say X. X. Shouldn't I? Is that what you say? (laughs) Um, So yeah, Clara Mason 77, I'm on there. Um, So very happy to continue conversations on there. Sign up to receive the From Page to Practice weekly newsletter to read tips and advice from my guests, as well as information on upcoming episodes. Find the link in the show notes for this episode. So hopefully by now um, we're familiar with this CPD library round. Um, You can give a book or a person or a podcast or whatever fits this category for you, really. Um, And if you want to give reasons, you can. If you want to take it a bit more quick fire, you can. Uh, Everybody's a bit different, although most people I've had have wanted to give me Nice long stories about everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the idea of this being a quick fire surely went out the window quite quickly. <laughs> um, so the first one is first got you into evidence-informed practice. Uh, well, I dug it out. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, so um, Learning Teaching um, is the book. And Barry Hymer is one of the three authors. And I saw him speak um, Oh years ago and he was talking about this book maybe 2016 something like that and um he's such a great speaker such a great talker it was such interactive cpd you know we had tasks we had activities to do um all based around what's in this book and it's very much practical examples so taking kind of um aspects of pedagogy but then really good Um, case studies of teachers teaching lessons and then questions to make you unpick those. Um, I love the way that Barry Hymer presents his CPD because it's all really personal. It's full of the most hilarious stories about children that he's taught, about his own children. Um, Like like you're like, it's like watching a stand-up comedian, but actually you're learning masses. And I remember watching him before I was responsible for CPD. And I remember thinking, yeah, okay, that's what I need to do that. (laughs) He was great. (laughs) Really great. The book sounds like a really true reflection of from page to practice as well, doesn't it? That sounds ideal. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The next one is resonated with you the most. I would say, well, it's kind of the one I just read. Can I have that That's one? Fine, yeah. Equity in education, <laughs> just because I'm so immersed in it at the moment, and it it's taken my thinking on pedagogy, which has been my real focus, to that to putting that in that bigger context um, of equity in education. So that currently is the one I'm yeah thinking about all the time. Absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, challenged your views. Um, I would say it's. Oh, 
Yeah, I've I recently, well, not that recently, a couple of years ago, read Ten um, Percent Braver, you know, from the Women's Ed Network, and you know, sits with me and was very keen to read it, but it definitely challenged my views in sort of accepting the challenges that women face in getting into leadership in education. And it's almost like I don't want to think that those challenges are there. They can't still be there, but actually they are there. And that that really challenged my views of sort of accepting that and how as women leaders, we need to be not pulling up the ladder behind us, but putting the ladder down and pulling those women up um, because because we need to have women in those leadership roles. And also within that, the particular challenges of women leaders from ethnic minorities as well, and that the very specific challenges around that. And it, you kind of think, yeah, actually, I hadn't thought about that as much as I should have done. So mm. yeah, that that was important to me, that one. Oh, that's a good one for that one, actually. I've, I've heard that one in here before, but I'm not sure it was in Challenged. I think it was in Resonated. Yeah. So the way you've reframed it in Challenge actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, depressing sense in, in, a, in a way, but sense, yeah. Yeah, and I think there's lots to resonate in there as well and lots of inspirational stories, but the fact that those challenges are still there for women in education and are very much still there is, is a challenge, I think, that we have to accept. For sure. Um, had the biggest impact on practice? I think probably Rosenshine's principles of instruction. Mm-hmm. I know it's a classic, um, <laughs> but it, it's a classic for a reason, isn't it? So, yep. um, and particularly Tom Sherrington's writing around Rosenshine um, and lots of our, you know, the CPD that I'm putting in place in school and lots about our whole school approach to teaching and learning is very much rooted in Rosenshine. It's so clear, um, but it's not so prescriptive that you can't make it your own. You know, you've got to have these features of a really good sequence of learning, but how you do them might look slightly different. Um, I'm not somebody, and certainly in my school, not somebody where we're all teaching from the same PowerPoint. We're all saying the same thing. There's features of really good sequences of learning. And it's and as individual teachers, we are doing those sequence, but it's not gonna look copycat in every single classroom because you know, really good teachers bring their personality and their experience. They do all the things that make really good learning, but they bring some of themselves. And I like that Rosenshine has those key, very clear things to do, but gives you a bit of room about what they might look like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah, it's important. not your lesson must look like this. But yeah, it's, I hate that. <laughs> have these elements going on around yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, should be required reading for either an early career teacher or a trainee teacher. I think the walkthrough series, um, mm-hmm. and not just for new teachers, but I think for new teachers, they are really, really good. I think. Um, you know, that step by step, literally step by step for different strategies, but organised in themes. So, you know, as a new teacher, you might be really working on your behaviour management. So there's the specific strategies for behaviour management broken down step by step. Um, I also think the first section in all the walkthrough books where it's a, you know, it's a double page in the little book, a double page summary of what the research says. So actually, as a new teacher, you probably haven't got time to go and read all of this stuff. 
enough yet, but a quick summary of, you know, the Marge model, a quick summary of retrieval, a quick summary of those things so that what you're doing is rooted in some research and then a step-by-step guide to how to do it. Um, I think I think they're great. Mm. Um, where am I up to? Oh, inspired you. Oh, I, I was going to say the same one. Equity you can. Ed- I'm going to say... <laughs> Oh, am I going to say equity in education? I think I probably am. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm going to say that one again. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> this has happened before where someone said, yeah, but I've, I'm basically telling you that I love this book, so it's yeah. going to fit into multiple <laughs> categories. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, where am I? Oh, <laughs> the next one. Most I recent. can answer it for you. It's the yeah. most recent. Literally. We'll skip on past. Uh, what's next on the to be read pile? Ooh, um, that is a good question. I've got, um, so I'm thinking quite a lot about leadership in organisations at the moment. So I've got in my to be read pile, um, Radical Candor. Um, I can't remember the author, but, um, and because it, I'm thinking a lot about authentic relationships and I think it's that with uh, students, but also with staff, um, we need to be able to have those authentic relationships as organisations at every level um, for the organisation to work at its kind of optimal level. So, yeah, Radical Candor is on my half-term reading list. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah, that's not far off now, is it? No, I've lost track now. I'm not in the classroom myself. I've lost track. Yeah. And the, yeah. the last <laughs> one, yeah, <laughs> the last one is doesn't exist but should. And people have taken this differently. It could be that yeah. there's something you're really interested in reading and you just can't find a book on it or, there's lots of bits and pieces on something you wish someone would just bring it all together and read it for you yeah. uh, so it doesn't exist but should yeah I think oh that's such a hard question isn't it it's so hard <laughs> I did think about it in advance I think I think it's this it links to what I was saying earlier about you know reading lots of things like in the book I just read you know we've got to think of different ways to get all families engaged in school and all families involved but I would like a book that has lots of ideas of like actual specific things that have worked in specifically in a large secondary comprehensive setting where you are not seeing those parents and say oh do you want to stay for a coffee morning or do you want to pop in at the end of school we we might never see them um I think practical strategies on that I mean I would literally buy that book today it was there you know what I think actually at this point we're I don't know 23 22 23 episodes into this series I think if a publisher went through and listened to the just that last question from everyone yeah there might be all sorts of ideas laying out there now (laughs) yeah definitely definitely well, thank you, Clara, because what everybody doesn't really realise this morning is that you've given up a, a Sunday afternoon for this conversation. So I really appreciate it. Um, it's been great to talk to you. and it's, it's been a long time coming because we, uh, we did reschedule our original slot, didn't we? So <laughs> we I really did. appreciate it. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Are you interested in evidence-informed practice? Do you have a favourite edgy book? Have an idea of what great CPD is and should be? Or to just generally have a chat about education? Please sign up to join me for a conversation. I rely on volunteers from all contexts and levels of experience. Visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast for the sign up form.
you've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.